0: Hi, this is Steve and, Don, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday,
1: September 13, 2011, and our special
0: guest tonight, or today, for those of you who are clearly in Australia, is Howard Gardner. Howard, welcome. <laughs> Excuse me, it is a little bit potem potakaj 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 potakaj
1: out many years ago as a psychologist, a developmental psychologist, a cognitive psychologist, very much in the Piaget tradition. I carried out experiments and did observations trying to understand children's intellectual development. I also had a lot of interest in the arts. Um, That's been a through line throughout my career. And I was also interested in children's artistic development. That's notable because Piaget thought all of intellect had to do with thinking scientifically. And so he neglected those aspects of cognition, which have to do with music, literature, painting, dance, and so on. Anyway, um, in the late 70s and early 80s, Because of my own research in children and also on brain-damaged adults, I became very suspicious of the notion that intellect was simply a single thing which could be summarized adequately by an IQ score. If you take IQ literally, if you have a high IQ, you should be good in everything. If you have a middle IQ, you should be average in everything. And if you have a low IQ, tough, you're just going to be a dummy. And my own research with children, looking at the arts as well as the sciences and other areas of cognition, and with brain damage patients, because I was working at a hospital in an aphasia ward. All that research said to me, Howard, you have that can't be enough. The story has got to be more complicated. So, and this is probably the aspect of my work which is best known. I developed what's now called MI theory, the theory of multiple intelligences, and I made the claim that instead of there being a single intelligence, that we have a handful of intelligences. At the time, I argued seven. I think the number is probably larger, but I'm actually less concerned with do I have a number absolutely right than do I have the pluralization of intelligences as a legitimate claim. And my work is well known. The work of Dan Goleman on emotional intelligence, social intelligence is is better known, but the whole practice of pluralizing intelligence grew out of that early work. Full stop. Uh, I wrote that, Steve, as a psychologist, and I thought that my audience would be psychologists, but in fact, uh, Many psychologists ignored it, and many psychologists were grumpy about it, and it's still quite controversial within psychology. But to my surprise and ultimate pleasure, the claim about different kinds of intelligence really struck a note of recognition with educators, educators different ages, different kinds of populations first, of course, in America, but uh, eventually all over. And I found myself, uh, without having particularly intended to be so, to be very much an area of education. And I was smart enough not right away to say, well, here are the educational implications of MI theory, because I didn't know I wasn't primarily an educator. But over the next decade, and really, over the next couple of decades, I became more interested in education, more knowledgeable about education, and I you know, have more of a you know, have more of a vis- in education probably than I do in other areas. Um, second full stop as a psychologist and as a person trained in developmental psychology. I was very much influenced by Piaget, who was the great figure in the understanding of the human mind, just as Freud was the great figure in the understanding of personality and motivation. And you could say that most of personality and motivation psychology is reaction to, to Freud. I think most of cognitive psychology is really a, a reaction to Piaget. Now we're finally getting to the book The Unschooled Mind. What I did in that book was to continue to think like a psychologist um, in the Piaget tradition, but make at the same time a move toward what are all the educational implications of that way of thinking. Because even though many people have used Piaget to talk about education, um, he really didn't have much to say about education. In fact, it was his peer, Vygotsky, who wrote much, much more about education. So uh, now I'm sorry for rambling on so long, but basically the unschool mind is a Piagetian coming out of the closet and saying, well, what do I think about children's minds as having to do with learning, thinking, school, and so on. (laughs)
0: I the difference between the two.
1: Kids are marvelous, and the more we study psychology, the more we learn that the infant is not a blank slate. We are born equipped with many notions, and more importantly, we're primed to pick up information quickly and to do things with it. And Many people, including me, and for that matter Piaget, have talked about the child as a uh, a a scientist in miniature. The child is trying to figure out the world just like scientists are. Scientists are trying to figure out the physical world matter, energy, and so on, the biological world, species, uh, reproduction, and the psychological world, the world of thinking, and so on. Well, so so are kids. And the research which I surveyed in the book, which wasn't particularly my own, showed how in every sphere that scientists look, kids have developed their own theories. These theories are charming. They're quite wonderful to behold. And occasionally, they're right on. But for the most part, uh, the theories do not hold any scientific water. And uh, in the book, I I say that uh, that's because we only evolved as a species to be able to live long enough to reproduce. We didn't evolve as a species to have correct explanations of matter, Uh, gravity, um, reproduction, and so on. And indeed, while humans have been evolving for two million years, and civilizations have existed for 10,000 years, um, science is a modern Western phenomenon. Uh, That may sound a bit jingoistic, but I would defend the proposition that science was invented in Western Europe Italy, France, England, Germany, roughly in the 16th and 17th century. Um, I'm going to make a political statement here. Uh, many of us know something about science. were quite amused when, in the, in the television debate last uh, week, uh, Governor Rick Perry of Texas uh, used uh, Galileo as an example of why people should be skeptical about climate change. Anybody who knows the slightest thing about Galileo knows that this is completely an extraneous claim, which has nothing to do with Galileo or what he did. Um, And I was kind of amazed that the media didn't figure out this uh, misuse of Galileo right away. But then somebody with a sense of humor said to me, well, What Perry was showing that he knew was that he knew the name of the scientist and perhaps for his audience that's all that they care about. But uh, Galileo was, many people consider, the first real scientist. And that's because he didn't just claim that if you have a heavy object in your hand and a light object in another hand and you drop them at the same time, the heavier one will hit the ground more rapidly, which is a unschooled mind kind of view, but he actually went up to the Tower of Pisa and he dropped various uh, uh, objects of various mass and showed that acceleration operates uh, the same way, um, uh, independent of of mass. So uh, he was somebody who didn't just make statements about the world, he went out and tested them. Uh, And now to kind of jump to the punchline again with apologies for is this rather long introduction, um, what the book argues is that in order to learn how to think in a disciplined way, um, I've just lost the image, but I hope you're still hearing me. Okay, yeah, it's come back on again. Um, to think scientifically, to think historically, to think mathematically, indeed to think artistically, are deeply unnatural acts. and Uh, if we want people to be able to think in those disciplined ways, they need to be educated. Uh, Nowadays, we'd say they have to go to school. I'm not going to argue today that school as we know it is the only way you can be educated, but it doesn't happen by chance. Um, And the book goes on to argue that we can't simply say, well, kids, your theory about uh, um, energy or about reproduction or about the solar system is wrong, here's the right answer. Um, We really have to deconstruct those inappropriate, those inaccurate theories, and help them construct uh, a better one. And here's a good point for an anecdote. Uh, When our son Benjamin was five years of age, um, they said to Benjamin, "Um, what's the shape of the Earth? And he said, why, Dad? It's round. Uh, so I said to myself, good, you don't have a misconception. And I said, Benjamin, but tell me, where are you standing? And he said, that's easy. I'm on the flat part underneath. He had learned to spit back the answer, the earth is round, or maybe even spherical, um, but he his the evidence of his eyes are that the world's flat. There are a few hills where he lives, but basically it's flat. So why should we possibly think the world is really round? That's just something you say to shut up your parents. And So many of the theories that kids put forth um, are based on their common sense, but actually once you become disciplined, you realize that it's common nonsense. It's what our senses tell us, but it's not absolutely accurate. And the smoking gun, and I go into great lengths about this in in the book, is even kids, even young people who've had a tremendous education in a discipline, science, history, math, economics, whatever, once you examine them outside of the classroom, and you give them an example which they haven't run into before, not only do they not explain it correctly, they often give exactly the same answer as somebody who's never been to school. And that's why we talk about the power of the unschooled mind. To really undo the unschooled mind and to get to learn to think differently about things is damned hard. And all of us, no matter how expert we are, um, have a danger of regressing. And I would encourage listeners, I imagine everybody who's listening is an expert in something, whether it's a sport or a craft or teaching or your subject matter. um, If you think about the most important ideas in that area or the most important skills in that area, they aren't things you can just say, oh, do this or here's the answer and people are there. If it was, you wouldn't have to be trained. In fact, it's undoing a lot of the unschooled stuff, whether they're skills or ideas or theories or concepts, and then painfully constructing a better way of doing things. That's what education is about. So this is where Howard Gardner stopped being a psychologist, writing for other psychologists, and began to become a psychologist and thinker, writing for a more general audience of parents, teachers, um, staff, administrators, and anybody really who's interested in how we learn. And now that uh, formal education is very much um, being challenged by the Internet, by technology, by lifelong learning, by uh, education on campus, but also education at the workplace, apprenticeships, uh, lifelong learning, adult workshops and so on, I would hope that some of my educational writing and the educational writing of other people, whether it's Vygotsky or T.I.J. or my friend Kieran Egan, wouldn't just be seen. oh, that's something that K-12 teachers are interested in but nobody else would care about, but rather than something everybody interested in learning should care about. I teach at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, people like that name, but I said to the Dean the other day, not entirely in jest, we should call ourselves the Harvard School of Lifelong Learning, because that's where I think we are in the 21st century. Not just school, not just K-12, to but learning throughout life, which means dealing with the misconceptions, the misunderstandings, the theories which can be present if you're 5 or 50 or 500. <laughs>
0: get up and put a flick 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 put a 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 a Welcome <laughs> to
1: Explain what I mean by uh, we learn some things so easily. Uh, every two-year-old who is not grossly impaired learns to speak not only his or her language, but if this child is in a bilingual or trilingual environment, will learn those those languages quite easily, and Noam Chomsky is the great linguist of our time, and he tried 50 years ago to explain just what it is that human beings have that enable us to learn language so readily. And even though there are now thousands of people working on that topic, we still don't have a good answer, even though if you, if you go out and get a child, and you put him in China, and you speak English, and you have a French. Uh, governance, that child by the age of three or four will go quite readily from one language to the other. So that's what I meant by the things that we can do quite readily uh, when, uh, when we're young. Um, the, uh, I would say, Steve, that you're correct that much of contemporary education, both in the United States and in most other countries, is really oriented more toward facts and toward definitions and things you can spit back uh, rather readily, as opposed to understanding, which is much more complicated. Um, but I think the bad news is even when you shoot for understanding, it's, uh, it's not easy to get. And I'll tell a story myself. After I developed these ideas, and am I now a more audible, can you hear me okay?
0: Just yeah, um, I
1: said, well, Howard, you know, you're teaching at Harvard. These students are pretty good. Um, I want to see whether, let's see whether how the understanding of, of my students has been. And uh, Harvard students are very good at picking up information. So if I gave them an exam at the end of the year, And I said, well, what are Piaget's uh, four stages? Or um, how did Vygotsky define something? They'll do very well. And so we have the illusion um, that the the students have really mastered the material. But then instead, with two other colleagues, um, what I did was to create uh, a set of performances of understanding, where I gave the students some new material things which they'd never seen or heard before, and said, explain this. And I found that even in my Harvard graduate students, I had pretty much the same situation that I described in the of Mind. Namely, by and large, they weren't much better at explaining things in a deep way after the course than they were before. And that, that was a wake-up call for me. So I'm teaching a course now, and just yesterday, uh, I I basically repeated the experiment, and I'm happy to tell you, but I I have a feeling that I'm talking a lot, so you should interrupt me if you want me to go into another direction. So, then, let me see what I happened in class, did in class yesterday. This is the second class, and after you know we did some housekeeping, um, I handed out a piece of paper to all the students. They didn't get the same piece of paper, but they didn't know it, and they were given um, a dilemma. This was an ethical dilemma because the course is about ethics, and they were asked to do two things: number one to talk about how the protagonist in that, in that ethical dilemma thought about his, his situation. And number two, um, they were asked, how would you, as an analyst, describe that situation? So therefore, you're not putting yourself in the head of the person facing the dilemma, but rather, um, you're trying to look at it the way a, a, a scholar would look at it. So then I collect, after 20 minutes, uh, they were able to write 150 words on uh, the dilemma. I collected all this stuff, and I said, well, I don't like to be mysterious, so let me explain to you what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And then basically, I talked to them about the unschooled mind. I made a joke. With one of the people we read is Mahai, And I said, by the end of this course, I know you're going to be able to spell Mahai." better than you can at the beginning of the course. And I talked about terms that we use, domain and field, and I said I know that by the end of the course you're going to be able to tell me the definition between difference between domain and field. I said that's the way a lot of exams are. But in this course we're helping you, we hope to think better about ethical issues. So what I've done now is to get kind of your naive, your virgin, your unschooled approach to these ethical issues. I'm going to ask you not to talk about the dilemma to anybody else in the class because you will not have gotten the same dilemma as somebody else, but at the end of the course we're going to give you a new dilemma and we're going to see whether you approach it in a more sophisticated way. Harvard hasn't asked me to do this. This isn't going to count for your grade. In fact, if we could do it anonymously, it would. But we didn't bother to. We just got their names. But what I'm interested in as a teacher is have my students really learned what I think is most important? And as I mentioned before, Steve, the frightening result from cognitive research is even the best students in the best schools. I talk about kids at Johns Hopkins and Harvard. When you give them something new to make sense of, they often don't do any better than somebody who'd never taken the course at all. So yes, even when you're shooting for understanding, it turns out to be very elusive. <laughs>
0: I would appreciate it. This <laughs> that it.
1: necessary. I'm less sure that it's sufficient. <laughs> um, I've just written a new book which which you know called Truth, Beauty and Goodness Reframed. It just came out this year. And you're asking a question which I would say falls in the truth area, though also I think it falls in the goodness area. But let's treat it as if it's a question about truth. I make the claim in the book that We live at a time when we can more likely figure out the truth about things never before, and that's because there's such a huge amount of information available. Um, However, there are two challenges. One is to sift through the information so we know what to pay attention to and what to ignore, and that's a challenge. But the other one, and this gets directly to the question you're asking, is can we understand the method which underlies the claims and the stories that we read about. Uh, Let's take uh, a blog and compare it to a New York Times article. Occasionally a blog will have it right and a New York Times article will have it wrong. But by and large, most bloggers just say what they think without having done any original research let alone having done investigation the way a reporter does. On the other hand, if you read it in the New York Times, you can be relatively sure that somebody's made the best effort to figure out what's going on, and when he or she is wrong, the New York Times will print uh, a correction. Now, people who are listening are saying, well, what about weapons of mass destruction? The New York Times got it wrong there, but boy, was there a lot of Um, breast-beating and soul-searching and so on. So to get back to your question, um, if we understand the methods behind assertions then we can really evaluate how legitimate and how valid they are. But that takes a lot of work and the reason I said that may be necessary but not sufficient, people may still have very selfish reasons for Wanting to hold on to an erroneous theory, uh, I mean I think many wealthy people living uh, on wall Street now uh, let 's say know that uh, you know the truth about evolution or about climate change, but they 're willing to bite their tongue because uh, they don 't want to have any new taxes, and so they want to, they're going to want to vote for people have people voted for who uh, not only don't want to raise taxes, but who played audiences about the you know the uh, the weakness of science. Uh, a fascinating finding I I read recently, and we were actually talking about this today um, with the press, is that uh, most Americans trust scientists on climate change less than they trust meteorologists. Now that's bizarre. A meteorologist, uh, uh i'm sorry a weatherman a weatherman and i don't mean a meteorologist I mean a weatherman on t v who's often called a meteorologist, but those people don 't do any kind of original research they don 't have any sense of control conditions they don 't know how to look at data over thousands of years but um, because uh, willard scott 's friendly and looks good, people believe that more, and so uh even when people should know better, they often don't, and that's why the issue to get people really to understand the complex issues that you talk about, and then to uh, to go with the evidence rather than what their prejudices pushes. That's a that's a very very big question. Nonetheless, it's the question I'm most interested in, and I imagine it's the question you're most interested in. Otherwise, you wouldn't have asked it.
0: I didn't even
1: actually seen the film, and I think it's well worth seeing. I would add, for extra credit, um, I spent a lot of my time thinking about Finland and also Singapore. They're two countries which couldn't be more different from one another in polity and, 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 and in the, in the way that they are governed, and yet, you know, they have schools which seem to produce more understanding and more educated people than than we do in this country. Um, I think America makes a huge mistake in its belief in an exceptionalism, namely that there aren't things that we can learn from other places. So very consistent with what you've said, I think we need to study systems like that very carefully and try to learn from them. I happened to go back to back to those two countries last year and I had a theory about four reasons in which I thought they would be different from the United States. And I'll see if I can remember them. They were all correct. But there was a fifth one which I hadn't thought about and that one I do know and that I want to share with the the people who are listening. I said, well, first of all, they're pretty small, which is true, the countries. Um, They're pretty homogeneous, which we are not. Um, Third of all, um, parents are quite involved in education and all parents want their children to um, be educated, but I'm about halfway through battle him with the tiger mother. And boy, what it means to spend 10 hours a day with your kids playing an instrument. It's not what most Americans parents think is being involved. It's saying, do your homework. Uh, and the fourth thing, which everybody would know, is that there's the teachers are treated as professionals. They are professionals. They're well-trained. There's a lifelong course. They get paid reasonable sums of money. So all those four things I knew before um, coming there. The thing which I learned by being back to back in those countries is that they're much flatter. But I don't mean my son, Benjamin, who said the world is flat. What I meant is, of course, they're wealthier people than poor people. But it's not particularly apparent in the schools. Um, You have good teachers sort of across the board. And the differences in, in, in social class and income not only are less, but they're minimized. Everybody listening to this if they're in the United States knows that if you know the person's zip code, uh, you can make many, many guesses about the quality of education. And while there are exceptions both ways, there are wealthy areas where the schools aren't very good, and there are pockets of, of impoverished areas where the schools are very good, by and large, the correlation between zip code and, and student performance in any measure is is very high. So the big thing, which almost nobody wants to bite though, I'm, I think Obama did before he ran for president, is we need to get rid of the huge inequities in this country. And I would add for extra credit that uh, instead of uh, fighting trillion-dollar wars, we ought to become a country that's admired for how we do things which was the case much more 50 years ago than it is now. We're feared in many places, but there's less and less that's admired about this
0: country. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a of the first we're talking about. We're talking about the people who are trying to of the way. We're to get that out of the We're to get that out of the way. about the that We're talking about the people
1: question, Steve I would say yes there are obstacles but by no means are they insuperable one obstacle is uh, our belief that everything can be quantified should be quantified and that it should be ranked um, and this has driven us to use instruments which are quite simplistic um, in our assessment of of accomplishment, You know, in Finland, they really test, and their educational system is much more progressive than ours. In Singapore, there is a lot of testing. It's a very, very different kind of society, not one I particularly want to live in. Um, but they certainly do go into things into depth. And uh, I have to say that Singaporean students I've had at Harvard are off the scale, so they have no paucity. Of understanding, but there's there are many uh, obstacles. But here's where I think that we aren't at a disadvantage. Um, I think that, and here I go against many of many authorities. I don't think that the strength of America has ever really been primarily in our schools. I think our strength has been in the steady stream of immigrants that we've had in the existence of frontiers and in the encouragement of innovation and entrepreneurship. Now, we're cutting down immigrant integration. We're making it very difficult for immigrants to come here. I think that's very stupid and ill-considered. The frontier, the physical frontier, dropped out um, hundred years ago, the cyber frontier is one where we're still way out front. I mean, you know, the people who were in America were born in 1954 and grew up in the 70s and 80s are the people who caused the digital revolution. We know their names. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak, Paul Allen, uh, etc. So that frontier is one that we did very well. And also the biological frontier we've done. We've done very well, um, so I guess if we decide to keep bringing people into the country, to attack—what I've attacked is the wrong verb—to to think well about whatever the new frontiers are, and to create opportunities there. I think that, so to speak, our our cognitive engine will keep. Writing. But here is the big challenge, which I didn't really understand until um, a year or two ago, even though I wrote about it in a book called Five Minds for the Future, but sometimes you write about it and you don't really understand it until some times later. Here's the big challenge. Basically, um, we're going to lose just about all jobs which are relatively automatic. That is, anything that can be done by a robot or by an automaton will be done very soon by those things. And if they're not, they're going to be outsourced to places which pay um, a tenth as much salaries as we do. So what's going to be left? Service interests are going to be left. Uh, Wealthy people still want to go to restaurants and be spoiled by waiters. And you you can fill in the blanks. And so there'll still be a service industry, because you can't do that sort of stuff with a robot. But the country is going to succeed or fail by having people who can continuously be creative and innovative on their job. That's why I talked about the Harvard Graduate School of Lifelong Learning. And there is certainly nothing in the American character which is opposed to that. In fact, 50 years ago, that's what people would have said about the American character, but if we become fat and self-satisfied. And In an essay which uh, Bill Damon and Mike Chisholm, High and I are working on, we talk about the imperative of going beyond fear and greed. Fear that uh, we better get everything before we, before we before we lose out. We have to be defensive if we're not going to be. You know, the, uh, the best in this and the best in that. Or greed, we want it all for ourselves and we don't want to share it. And 50 years ago as a young American, I would never have characterized our society as one that's pervaded by fear and greed. But I do think, alas, it is a good characterization of much of America now, so much so that when a young colleague of mine who is Finnish who actually took me to Finland last year, wrote to me from Moscow, where she lived for the five years. She said, your essay on beyond fear and greed reminded me of Russia. That was t- terrifying, because you know we spend my youth trying to be different from Russia and the Soviet Union. And to think in a sense that fear and greed, which is so big now and uh, in manic. Russia is also a description of much of America is very, very frightening. So I've gone on at length, but I think the only obstacle for understanding is our worship of rather simplistic assessment instruments. But if we went back to things about America which have a longer uh, shadow, immigration, entrepreneurship, um, looking for new frontiers, I think we could do Quite well, and you know that is part of what you know. The the better angels on both sides of the political spectrum are calling for, but it's being drowned by the kind of noise that you
0: talked about earlier. <laughs> I have a very good education, I have a good education. 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 I have
1: leadership which has broad support, Uh, and uh, that's what, you know, somebody tries to lead and then the opposition just congeals against them. And, uh, you know, the people who we look up to, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Washington, I've just read the Chernow um, biography of of Washington. They all had oppositions, but enough people joined into their cause that they were able to uh, basically confront that opposition, and
0: I don't see that happening today. (laughs) to to be there's
1: the next excellent question the way I think about this is that students who go to the better schools in those countries, and I think it's true about you know, the better schools in the United States as well, um, get deeply enough into topics that when you're given something new to take a look at, which is the acid test for understanding, they at least have a sense of how to go about um, attacking these these questions. The big difference is that um, 25, 30 years ago, people would come to see me from China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and they would say, "Uh, Professor Gardner, um, you're an expert in creativity. Um, Please tell us the 43 steps to become creative in order. And then they would get out their pencil. And of course, I'm caricaturing here. Uh, I think those countries, and I'm I'm talking now mostly about East Asia, I'm not talking about Western Europe, were terrific in getting deep mastery of um, traditional subject matter, but not being able to go beyond that to actually, as we put it, find new questions and new problems, not just answer ones which have already existed. That difference is gone. Nowadays, because of the political changes, the economic changes, and the existence of the internet, there isn't a place in the world which doesn't have access not only to all knowledge, but to what it's like to be creative, imaginative, and so on. So that edge, which we may have had 50 years ago, we call the Galilean edge or the Socratic edge, is gone. and In a way, that means the world will be flatter because it's not going to be possible for certain regions of the world to dominate uh, the way earlier empires did, dating all the way back to Egypt and Greece uh, and then to the, the great European empires of the 16th, 17th, 18th century. And I don't think that's bad, but it's going to be hard for the United States to adjust to adjust to that. Um, that's why uh, I think we have to begin to think about not how do we have more and not how do we have, um, no, how are we number one, but how do we have enough and how do we create citizens and societies that we're proud of? How do we go beyond fear and greed to trust and inspiration? And you have an idealistic aspect in you. That's the idealistic aspect in me. And that's why for the last 15 years after writing the book we're talking about, my colleagues and I have been working on what we call good work and good citizenship because that's what we think is the, the biggest gap in this country today. <laughs>
0: I don't know about that. 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 I don't know about that pata 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 pata
1: Absolutely. Um, children's museums and exploratory are often at the cutting edge of learning because they're optional. Nobody has to go there. And so the people who go there want to make use of them. And I'm continuing to be a great fan of those informal learning sites. Um, and the you know I'm critical in many ways of the digital media, but they have been incredible for giving opportunities to people all over the world to pursue their something, something they are interested in, even if nobody else in their town is. I mean, until 25 years ago, unless you were wealthy, if you were interested in some obscure form of caricature, or some obscure scientific issue, or some obscure mathematical area, there was nobody around. You were sunk. Um, now, um, for the 10% of youth who don't just use social networks or don't just kind of mess around but are actually geek out. That's the phrase that's used. There's incredible opportunities to learn. And just like the old joke on the Internet, nobody knows that I'm a dog. If you're a mentor in the Internet for, let's say, learning Japanese anime or playing chess or Go, uh, nobody knows if you're 15 or 40. It doesn't matter if you can be a be a master or a mentor there. So that's an incredible opportunity. It is also speaking, frankly, a real threat to organized education. Many people who are listening will know about the Khan Academy, developed some years ago, which are these short lessons on uh, scientific and and disciplinary topics. And uh, the other day a fan of the Khan Academy showed me, number one, that there are 72 million people who visited it, or 72 million hits. And number two, the kid says, I learned more from this con lesson uh, in 20 minutes than I have from my teacher all year. Now, that's an awful thing to say. It may not even be true. But uh, that's, you know, that, that's the challenge to traditional education posed by the opportunities available on the web.
0: It is a little
1: namely the notion that you should not pay attention to anything about the individual and teach everybody the same thing in the same way and assess them. I don't have to do any experiments to know that that's wrong. However, um, I don't know the particular article, but I certainly know the argument. Um, it is the case that people who propose the notion of learning styles have not done the kind of systematic research which would convince a skeptic that they've got the analysis right. And I should say, I'm kind of relieved that people haven't mushed together multiple intelligences with learning styles because I've spent 30 years saying they're very different kinds of concepts. Nonetheless, if you said to me, Howard, have you done a knockout argument to show that in multiple intelligences education is better than some other one, um, I would not be able to give you a, an unalloyed yes. I'll tell a brief anecdote here, make it very brief. Ten years ago, I got a phone call from the BBC. They said test scores are going up in England and the and the Minister of Schools, David Miliband, says it's because of multiple intelligences that you appear the BBC. So I went to the web and I looked it up, and I said, okay. And then I went on the radio and I said, if test scores in England go up because of multiple intelligences, I'm quite willing to take credit. But if they go down, I'm not going to take the blame. And that's because these things are so complicated. They're very difficult. They're very difficult to um, to assess. That's more complicated than you probably wanted, but it is an effort to tell you how I feel about that
0: that line of work.
1: Sure, I know about the school you mentioned, but um, I've actually um, been in very close touch and visited the Philippines to attend the school. The school that Mary Jo Abaquin has started, which has been a multiple intelligences school for over ten years, and that's a wonderful example of a school that I'm quite
0: convinced
1: does a great job. But, and this is the reason for my wisecrack about. Britain. You can't say it's because Mary Jo Abbequin believes in multiple intelligences. They do twenty other things there, and
0: you know, success
1: has a thousand parents. We can't say, well, it's because they believe in individual differences, or because they teach uh, poetry in more than one way. That that's why the school is effective. But maybe because they have great teachers who love kids, or because parents work very hard, or because they have food that's good. Uh, uh, so that that's the background behind my earlier um, comment. let me give you two answers to your question. Number one, um, we published a book called "Multiple Intelligences Around the World" in the year two thousand and nine. We had forty two scholars from fifteen um, countries in five continents, and two including two from the Philippines who wrote about their experiences, and that would be the best way to get a sense of things that have worked and why. Number two, after 30 years of developing these ideas, there really are two key educational implications. Individuation and pluralization. These are simple to describe, not that easy to do. You certainly didn't need my theory to do these things, but my theory gives you a way of thinking about it. Individuation is learn as much about the learner as possible and try to teach that learner in the way that he or she can understand and perform their understanding. And that's why this dismissal of learning styles may be correct, but it certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to the individual. That has to be nonsense. Um, Pluralization means anything that's important can be taught more than one way. And the more that you can teach things in a multiplicity of ways, the more people you reach, and the more likely you are to really understand. And in the back section of the book, the School of Mind, and also in my book, The Disciplined Mind, I give examples of taking important concepts and presenting them in many different ways. And so if you were saying to me, here's a multiple intelligence, to school is it any good, I would say, to what extent do they take individual differences really seriously, and to what extent do they really teach important stuff in lots of ways? Those would be to be my, those would be my metrics, so to speak.) <laughs> to mention specific schools, um, because I would have to do it based on reputation rather than having visited them, but um, every year at Project Zero, which is a group I've been involved with for 40 years at Harvard, um, we have something called the Project Zero classroom. People come from 20 or 30 countries. um, They come from uh, 20 or 30 states, and we have 90 faculty there. And the faculty at the Project Zero classroom are people who really want to talk. They do teaching for understanding. They do workshops on it. Um, We have a, at at our school, we have a a, a web teaching called um, Wide, W-I-D-E. And there you can work with master teachers on teaching for understanding, which would include the kind of scientific and mathematical Christopher and Cotters are talking about. So, so those are the sources that I would recommend to you, but I'm not going to mention the specific schools um, because I, I just don't feel that
0: I have the authority to do that. <laughs> Another <laughs> little
1: Ambivalent about my way of thinking about it. So I'll at least share my ambivalence with you. In my world, there wouldn't be words like scale up or replication. Rather, people would do stunning things and people would come to see what they do and want to try to recreate it. At which point we would then try to help them. And I have the perfect example of that those are the preschools in Reggio Emilia northern Italy, which I've been visiting for over 30 years. I just wrote to them today to arrange my trip this year. They have no interest in proselytizing whatsoever. They make it very difficult to visit. But all over the world, when people go to those schools, you are so inspired that they try to do Reggio. And anybody listening to this program who uh, is in early education would know about the Reggio school, so that's my preferred way. But life is short, and um, so I guess the the ambivalence is uh, I'm not particularly a uh, an admirer of many of the things that the KIPP schools do. Knowledge is power, but they know what they're doing, um, and you know if you've got the resources to bring a KIPP. Kids' team there and set it up. I think you'll get some you'll get some positive results. Um, and uh, I have said, and I think I actually said it in the Unschooled mind. I would rather send my kids, and I've got four of them, and I'm working on grandchildren now. I would rather send my kids to a school where I don't know the don't like the philosophy, but the teachers know what they're doing and trying to achieve them. And here you can read Kipps or Singapore than a school where people have a multiple intelligence philosophy or some other progressive philosophy that I'm more in sympathy with, but they don't know what they're doing and they're working at cross purposes. So I guess ideally, in my world, people would do great things, and other people would want to get on the bandwagon and figure out how to do it. But we don't live in a perfect world, and if and if there's a model which is effective somewhere. Like KIPPS, I think people should try. You know, if they buy the model, they should try to learn from the model and 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 get help. the um, the The answer to the to the question, in a sense, is Americans prefer to do things their own way, and that's been good historically. But it's probably a luxury that we can't afford anymore when it comes to education. The real tragedy, Steve, is I live in Massachusetts, which is considered the most effective state. We have the best exams and the new common core is really based upon Massachusetts. We don't have to change it. But what the country now wants to do is become like Massachusetts but fund
0: like Mississippi. That's the real tragedy. (laughs) Thank you, Steve, and good morning and good evening to you, you have I hope you can hear my question, I'm I'm going to um, replace it into the text for you. you probably answered in a lot of it already, but I was interested to, to, to know through your research what you think about that, the ways in which culture in particular countries is either transmitted will liberate their ability to chat language, and in particular, uh, you know, uh, uh, educating for understanding things, rather than teaching for front What wondering what you have been mind about um, different cost functions and how they go the wards
1: Great question. I'm sure culture is extremely important. Um, my book on multiple intelligences uh, was written by an American who's not uh, that learned about other cultures. But I think I was the first person to write about intelligence that I actually did try to understand what was valued in other cultures and why. And you probably know that's how I begin my book things of mind. So I think cultures are tremendously important, um, and they are initially going to be more or less open to my various ideas, um, but probably the most important thing is whether the cultures are willing to change, which is itself a feature of culture. We distinguish between hot and cool cultures. Um, let's take um, Germany and Japan. They were completely defeated in the Second World War. They were decimated. Um, nobody at that time would have predicted that by the 1970s and 1980s, they were the countries that people were looking up to. And even though Japan is in a funk, it's still a very well-functioning society. And I'm amazed at how they were able to deal with the, the tsunami. Um, so short answer to your question, Carol, is where cultures are is very important. But the willingness of the culture to change is of the essence. And part of my critique of the United States now is too many people don't want to change. They want to go back to a mythical period which never existed. And so we need to be able to change in terms of the 21st century. You sound like you're from down under. Is that right? (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay. um,
1: I think that uh, I'm pretty hopeful about Australia, but one of my jokes is we all just pay a lot of attention to Canada, Scotland, and New Zealand because Canada does things in reaction to the way the United States does it. Scotland does things in reaction to the way that England does it. And New Zealand does it in, a way in reaction to Australia. So maybe you may want to pay attention to New Zealand because they may know some things that uh, your fellow country people don't. If you're New Zealand or Tasmania, I take my hat off to you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: I don't know if
1: Thanks, everybody, and good evening or good morning. your coming. If you had a question that got to, I didn't get um, into the queue, I apologize. Um, but it is 9 o'clock his time, and I wanted to make sure that we let him go on time. Sure appreciate your coming. Sure appreciate the great conversation in the chat. And I uh, look forward to future interviews. Take care, and bye.